Hello, everybody. Quick cold open here to talk about Running Home, the book that we've been reading lately by Katie Arnold. And we reached out to Katie Arnold and she responded to us to say that she would be happy to answer some questions and potentially even come on the podcast here uh, about her book, Running Home, which Michelle and I have both been reading and both been enjoying. Uh, and hopefully some of you have been reading it as well. So I wanted to encourage you, if you have questions for the author of the book, Katie Arnold, reach out to us, pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can send me an email at george at itlcoaching.com. Reach out to us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasant podcast, or even on Instagram. Uh, and we would be happy to pass on to her any questions that you have about the book. Let's get on with the show. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there's always someone available to answer questions and to help adjust the training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. Blue Pineapple Travel can be found at bluepineappletravel.com. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They are all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The agents at Blue Pineapple Travel love to help people plan their travel. Their goal is to match you with the trip that you want. Whether you're looking for relaxation or adventure, traveling solo or with a group, inside the U.S. or abroad, they are there to match you to the trip for you. Blue Pineapple Travel will help you curate all of the travel information out there to create the exact vacation that you want. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by SlayRx. You can find them at www.slayrx.com. SlayRx is a sports nutrition company that makes products for athletes, team sports, and anyone that trains or works outdoors. SlayRx was founded by an endurance athlete and University of Georgia food scientist who was unhappy with the choices he was offered on course in long course triathlons. He started making his own mixes and now you can enjoy those same mixes. SlayRx offers differing levels of electrolytes in their hydration products and you can get them with or without calories. You can either take their online test at SlayRx.com or you can be tested in their laboratory to determine the exact amount of liquid and electrolytes that you need to be consuming while racing. In addition to hydration products, SlayRx offers fueling products like their product Diesel, which is available with or without the optimum level of caffeine that is scientifically proven to legally enhance performance while limiting GI upset and diuretic impact. If you're looking for alternative to gels, try SlayRx Spark Plug, a Pop Rocks-like powder that combines the same electrolytes that are in their other products, encapsulated caffeine, and quickly absorbed carbohydrates. It comes in a plastic tube so it can be carried while running, and it will work to enhance and fuel your alertness, general happiness, and performance. Remember, tell them the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast sent you by using the coupon code PLEASANT2020 at checkout on their website, and you'll get 10% off anything you purchase there. That's SlayerX.com, PLEASANT2020. Test, don't guess with SlayerX. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast possible. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast, brought to you by ITL Coaching Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slayer X. 
My name is George Darden. I'm a father of twin boys, a college professor, and a runner and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. My name is Michelle Frank. I'm a mom to three girls. I work full-time as a CPA, and I am an endurance athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. Right on. An endurance athlete. Actually, both of us are endurance athletes right on the verge of doing an event. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm excited about my event. I'm excited about your event, Michelle. We're going to talk about it more in here in just a minute. But, uh, but Michelle, tell us how you're doing. Uh, I feel pretty good. Um, you should definitely be more excited about your event. I think of the two of us, you are way more prepared. I haven't run more than two hours. I don't think this calendar year. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm going to go run a marathon on Friday. So um, I'm excited to travel. We're going to head to Zap Fitness um, up in Boone. Mm -hmm. And the goal was some cooler temperatures, better weather, but it looks like it's going to be pretty much just like it is here and raining. So I was going to say, you, you might get some cooler temperatures. It looks like it is going to be raining a little bit too. So the, the high temperatures are lower. So Yeah, but we were, you know, if we had gone last weekend, it was 49. Oh, sunny wow. On okay. Sunday, I didn't so, realize that's what we we're yeah. comparing it to. A little but, bit of uh, regret there, but we'll uh, make the best of it. So I think, I think you'll still have a good time. And I know that you'll, you'll do well. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm, I, I think you'll have a memorable experience in the virtual Boston marathon. Um, it might be painfully you... memorable. <laughs> well, every marathon is, is painfully memorable in some sort of way. So hopefully it'll, it'll be additionally mm -hmm. memorable in some sort of positive way as well. Yeah. Um, I think it will be. And I think you're doing it right too i'm glad that you're you're going to be with some friends i'm glad that you're 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 kind of making an, a, a a weekend out of it an event out of it still being safe of course but um but but not just you know running laps around your 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 backyard or something yeah i mean no, i need to finish in time well. to to see you come through boone right that's right that's <laughs> right so yeah i know we have a hard stop on tonight's podcast but but definitely before i leave tomorrow to drive up to northern north carolina um, right there on the border of virginia uh, to start the blue ridge really i will let you know my eta for passing right through the middle of boone they've changed that leg like i mentioned uh, i think a couple of weeks ago um but uh but but we will be relaying right through there got my right. negative covid19 test today got my rapid Man. test as we all agreed on our team that we were going to get tested to make sure that we weren't going to be carrying that into the van where we're all going to be spending time together and yeah um, i get my results roll. tomorrow but they swapped me she counted to seven with the swab and it was pretty excruciating to be honest all right so. Uh, but hopefully it comes back negative. I guess if it doesn't, I'm going to have some really last minute uh, change of plans tomorrow, but I'm hopeful. So <laughs> I, I think it will. I think it will. So, so um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I feel confident that you and I are both going to have good weekends. And, and when we circle back around with everybody uh, in a week or two here, we'll be able to tell you about the, the, the races that we did that we've been talking about here over the course of the entire summer. Now that we're past Labor Day and summer's coming to an end. Um, we have said that tonight is going to be all about answering listener questions. And of course, I put that out to everybody and said, hey, ask us some questions. If you have questions that you've been wondering, if there's things that we have said that have been unclear, if there's just stuff you're curious about, be sure to let us know. And uh, we got a variety of questions um, uh, related to a whole bunch of different stuff. We had one question that actually came in specifically for Patrick. And so I reached out to Patrick and he and I recorded a piece that I'll drop in here and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But uh, where are we going to drop start in with this? 26 minute drop in. <laughs> <laughs> hey Patrick. <laughs> We're going to drop in the, uh, the, the, the long explanation of the, uh, the, the, uh, work that Patrick's been doing over the course of the past little while here, which deserves attention. Cause you know, Patrick beat me in yet another virtual race this past weekend. So, you know, uh, not that I'm bitter or anything. It uh, was the time, shoes. 
So it, it might have been he only beat me by about 15 seconds. So yeah. Um, but uh, but I won the five miler, which was another part <laughs> of it. So so I'm feeling okay about that too. Um, where do you want to start with, Michelle? Um, I'm going to let you pick because I'm actually not on the Google Doc right now. So. Oh, I am on the Google Doc. Well, let's uh, let's start with this. Um, since we're kind of talking about the races that we're doing and all that sort of thing, let's talk about one of the questions that came in specifically for you. Um, so we had a listener that wrote in and said, uh, you know, I feel like you were training for a race. You were training for, for, for uh, getting ready for Boston in April. And then suddenly it's like you were injured. Um, and, and can you tell us a little bit more about your injury? What happened? Why Jeff start running? And they actually said, weren't you just like about to do a race? So, so why don't you kind of just talk us through that? Sure. So uh, when they came out and actually canceled Boston, uh, we dropped the workouts, um, kept my mileage pretty similar uh, to what it had been, you know, building up. I think I was right on the cusp of kind of a two hour long run. Um, and then I decided about a week or two after they canceled Boston that I needed something on the calendar. So uh, we talked about a 10K time trial and I got really excited about it, specifically doing it on the track. So we took the training and you wrote more of a 10K training. And I think my body was basically, maybe my mind and my heart wanted to do a 10K time trial, but my body was like, no, no, we don't like this. So um, I guess essentially it started with what I thought was, you know, uh, a taut hamstring and then it turned into a tight quad. And I mean, I did all the right stuff. I went to a great physical therapist that I have. I saw a massage guy that I have um, and nobody was that concerned. Uh, then I guess it was just kind of a, a classic uh, that was on my right leg and then my lower left leg. I started having problems with my Achilles, got really painful, which meant my calf was way too tight. Um, so it was just the perfect you know, textbook imbalance. I was probably compensating on my left for the tightness that I was feeling on my right. And we kind of pushed forward. Um, I had that 10K time trial on the calendar for June 5th and we had decided that you know, it was, we were so close to it. Like, we might as well go for it. So hindsight's 2020. probably should have called it off before. Um, only made it through half of that time trial. And then I crazily went back and ran a really fast mile with Lauren Fogarty, who was also doing a 10K time trial. Mm -hmm. And then it was just so painful that uh, by the time I went back to the physical therapist, uh, he just you know said time to offload it completely. So mm -hmm. it looked like a week and then a week turned into a lot of weeks. Um, mm -hmm. But I came back really slow. I mean, I, you know, went hardcore on the spinning, came back with one minute on, one minute off for 10 minutes and um, just built up to 10 minutes running after a spin class and after that and kind of back to about 40 miles per week now. So um, no clue what my fitness is, but my body feels good. So I'm just thankful to be on the other side of it. Uh, I will say it's very hard to start running again in August. <laughs> Yeah. In Atlanta, when you miss all of June and July, I feel like everyone had the heat, you know, they got to acclimate to it. And I just got stuck in August. So right. um, I'm very much looking forward to fall. Right so, on. Yeah, right yeah. on. And, and, and Michelle, for those of you who don't know, has a particular disdain for hot weather. <laughs> so, <laughs> Excuse like, me, how many like, text like, messages like everybody, have I got? <laughs> everybody suffers in the hot weather. Everybody slows down in the hot weather, um, for sure. But, but it actually, Michelle might be one of the only people I know that actually is enraged 
by hot weather when she does has to do a run in hot weather. So. I just hate it. I just, it just yeah. sucks the life out of me. I just, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> right on. So, so Michelle is definitely, well, I, I'm looking forward to fall as well. October, I always say is the best, uh, the best month of the year to run if you're in the city of Atlanta or in Metro Atlanta or probably throughout the South. I mean, because it's, it's cool. So you can still wear shorts and short sleeves, but it's not so hot. Yeah, I think you know, shorts, and tall socks and long sleeves is mm. and to be comfortable in that is just oh it's so good like bring it on <laughs> <laughs> right on i will say so so having trained for uh an early marathon because you know initially of course i was supposed to do the tokyo marathon and it was on march 1st um having trained for that marathon which meant hitting my peak uh training times in late january and in yeah. early February. Cold temperatures. Yeah. I actually, I, I liked it more than I thought I would. Um, yeah. I've noticed that. I mean, I've gotten quite a few messages from you that talks about you know, <laughs> how much you're going to join team winter with me. And uh, I don't know about that. I, I don't know if I go that far. So, so my wife is, is, is a lifelong member of team summer. Uh, and so it would be very difficult for me just to, to, to completely give myself over to winter, but, but we'll see. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> um, I think one of the takeaways from, from Michelle's experience over the course of the past few months, and, and um, of course she and I have both reflected on it and, and Michelle says hindsight's 2020. Well, I, 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 I think hindsight is 2020, but at the same time, I think that, the, that there are two things that sort of stand out to me when I think about your experience over the course of the past few months. Um, one is the fact that, that, when Boston was canceled, um, right there in, in March and into April, basically. So right there around that time and everything starts shutting down and kids get sent home from school and just everything's falling apart. Yeah. Um, I, I think that a lot of us and we're, we're sort of thrashing about, um, and, and I was certainly fortunate because I had, I had gotten to squeeze a race in there. I had gotten to squeeze in the Los Angeles marathon. Patrick was fortunate. He had gotten to squeeze in the, the, the Atlanta marathon on March 1st, but, but, but you weren't as fortunate because your race was straight up canceled. And a lot of people were sort of in right. that situation. And so they're kind of thrashing about trying to figure out what to do now. Um, and, and I'd say, I think, I dare say a lot of people found themselves in a similar situation that you did. Yeah. Um, it felt but, like grasping at straws, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so I, I think we can say that hindsight's twenty twenty, but at the same time, life was so chaotic at that point, at that moment, that, that I, I don't know that, I, I think we made what we thought at the time was a pretty well-reasoned decision. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and, and life is not, certainly not perfect now, um, you know, and, and, and there certainly can be injections of chaos into our life right now. Um, but, but I do feel as if we, we've kind of hit a, a groove um, yeah, you know, and I mean, and I think you can see the difference between Patrick's response to the listener question to him about kind of just, you know, he had run a race and he was content just to yeah. drop into easy base training. And right I hadn't done anything this year. And I just wanted something on the calendar and some type of result to say like, Hey, look, I worked really hard and I got fit and I was able to do this. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's an excellent you know, point. I yeah. don't know. I think you're totally right. I think that's an excellent point. I think that, that that's a very instructive contrast. The other thing that stands out to me when I think about it is whenever you talk about recovering after a major race, not you, Michelle, but whenever anybody, a person talks about recovering after a race, um, you know, somebody runs a marathon and if that marathon doesn't go so well, they're like, oh, well, I just want, maybe I'll just take all this fitness that I built and I'll just use it in the race next week, or I'll just sign up for a different marathon or something else like that. And that's not really how it works. 
um, no. because you know if you, if you if you run a bad marathon, well, that was kind of your shot, and and now you have to stop and recover, and and you have to to rebuild and get ready for the next one. Um, you know, Patrick one time said when we were talking about the Chicago Marathon in 2017, where I didn't run very well, he said it's a real bum deal about how marathons if you don't run well, you have to wait six months before you can do another one, as opposed to a 5K, you don't run so well, you just sign up for another one the following next weekend, yeah. you know, and so so. Uh, and he's right about that. And and the reason why, though, is not because the marathon race takes so much out of you, even though it does. It's that the whole build takes a lot out of you. And so when you recover after a target race, you're not just recovering from the race, you're also recovering from the entire build. And so your body was pretty beaten up when we sort of pivoted and decided to put a whole new stress on it and and continue to build. Um, and I think that, that in that light, we've that's that's definitely a mistake that we made that like yeah. like in in that light that's something we probably should have seen um that the the just taking you from 99 percent fried <laughs> and you would have gone to 100 percent with the race you sure know? i would then, have gladly then, gone to 100 percent with the race <laughs> absolutely and but and, then i would have totally shut it down for two weeks i wouldn't exactly. have, you would have exactly. put a 30 minute recovery run and i would have said no like right Right. I know. I know. It's, 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 it's so, so I, I, anyway. think, I, I dare say a lot of people found themselves in your situation, but it's, it's interesting for me because I'm always somebody who advocates for, you got to rest after your big race. You got to stop. You got to recover. You got to take the time. You got to devote as much time to your recovery as you did to your build. And I'm, I'm, I'm really, really adamant about that. And then you have to be really, really, really careful when you, when you begin building again, like I'm always super adamant about that as an athlete and as a coach. Um, and I didn't quite recognize that in your context when your race got canceled you see what i'm saying yeah i mean i didn't recognize it either so yeah, yeah. um so anyway um so that's the story of michelle's injury <laughs> listener question Check. thanks for asking <laughs> <laughs> right on right on um let's see uh we've got a few questions about the tour de france but i'm not going to let you make you uh to hear those just yet michelle um somebody actually wrote a really short one and said uh george did you really not give uh, kudos onto the Stra on strava to the 5k world record um, we should tell them that you did give kudos eventually i did ultimately yes yeah. so and why uh, as 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 anybody knows who listens to this podcast i do not give uh, kudos to to somebody who just goes with the default on strava so if it just says morning run i just i don't give a kudo on it even if it was a brilliant morning run i don't give a kudo on it if it says you know uh evening ride i mean that's that's the default when when you sync up your device your garmin to um to strava that's the default that it gives and you have to go in there and change the name yourself or you can sign up for banddoc.com and they'll change it for you <laughs> um but but if you're not willing to put in that time to make the change there i'm not going to give you kudos on it um I, there's a, a an athlete that i used to coach his rule is always he doesn't give anybody kudos unless there's a map on it and so in other words you have to do the the, the workout outside even though i don't know what he thinks about all those zwift maps i got going on right now um <laughs> but when he first uh posted it Joshua Cheptegei did not rename it. It was simply a 12 minute and 35 second 5K <laughs> that was run around a track in Monaco. <laughs> and so no, the answer is I did not give it kudos on Strava. But, but he did rename it, didn't he? He did rename it. And he gave it the, the proper name that he should have, something along the lines of new world record 5,000 meters Monaco Diamond League meet or something like that. Something and did you give it immediate kudos? So absolutely. <laughs> 
Absolutely. I think I, I, I dare say, Michelle, it might have been you that actually sent me a screenshot that he had re renamed it. And so I went and found it and I definitely kudoed it. What? I would have kudoed it twice if I could have. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would have given it multiple kudos if that was possible inside of uh, inside of the Strava algorithms, but it's not. I would have given it a heart rather than simply a thumbs up um, if they had the same sort of thing that Facebook has, but they don't. So yes, I have now rectified that. I have now given Joshua Teptegai a, a, a kudos, a thumbs up on Strava for his 5K world record, um, which I know that Joshua Teptegai, he was probably really sweating that. Yeah, he's totally way more content in life now having your thumbs up there. Absolutely, so. absolutely. Um, let's talk about another kind of training question here. Um, so so uh, a training question came in that says, when you use heart rate for training, um, like MAF or what was recommended in Happy Runner, um, and you target a number, a heart rate number, like 150 beats per minute, for example, um, like how does that work? There was a few questions about that. And uh, I, I would also kind of draw your attention back to, to when I had the podcast with Eric Hall, um, who I'll be seeing tomorrow because he's one of my uh, Blue Ridge Relay teammates. But uh, Eric Hall was the, was the fellow who came on and talked about uh, GPS and about how GPS works so that you could get sort of a deeper understanding of why it is that, that your GPS might give you a different reading um, if you run on trails than it will if you run down a flat street. Um, and why it is that, that your GPS was not always accurate on track, even though that seems like a time when it would be really, really accurate. So anyway, a very interesting and very technical uh, conversation we had with him. Um, and he, at the end of that, he said heart rate, he felt was a pretty good metric. Um, sure. And so, uh, and I agree with that. Um, so I think that, there, there, that heart rate is a very good metric, but, but just like it, you have to kind of know how to use it. So with that in mind, uh, this person wrote and said, um, let's say you target this heart rate, 150 beats per minute, for example, which actually is about what my heart rate target is for an easy run. Um, and it says, is this a target for an average heart rate across the entire run? Um, the short answer to that question is yes. Uh, sure. particularly if you're running on a hilly course. Um, yeah, because the variation between going up and down could be, you could be up to 165, but then you could mm -hmm. be down to 132 mm -hmm. if you're going downhill. So yeah, yeah, totally. 100%. Yeah. And what's more like, also you'll drive yourself crazy checking the heart rate. Insane. Insane. Yes. Yeah. So the, 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 Don't do I, that. <laughs> I was actually, and, and one of my few claims to fame, I suppose, I was actually an early adopter of heart rate technology. So okay. a lot of times in, in uh, your high school senior year, or maybe even your junior year if you're really good, but a lot of times like uh, distance runners, um, or at least in you know, 1991, 1992, when I was a senior in high school, sort of the cool thing to do would be that your parents would hire like a private coach who would coach you in between cross country season and track season, right? And that was, it was almost like a status symbol. Um, sure, and so, that's so, every student athlete in East Cobb basically. So yeah, I could, I, could, I could see that, I could see that. Um, and so, so at the time though, it was, it was sort of a status symbol. And since I was running pretty well and, and wanted to try and, and go to a division one school to, to run and all that sort of thing, my parents for Christmas gave me four months of coaching with, um, a pretty well-known coach, a guy named Roy Benson. Um, um, and he, um, was a pioneer in, he was based in Atlanta at the time he coached at Marist, um, a private school in Atlanta. Um, and he, uh, was a pioneer in heart rate training. And so he actually gave me uh, a heart rate monitor um, and said, okay, here you go. And all literally I had the strap around my chest and it was a watch that had a readout on it. And that's it. Sure. And, I mean, and that's it was all just, they were at the beginning. Yeah. And it was three numbers and that was it. Right. 
And so I was just kind of supposed to run and just sort of look at it and, and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and what I found, and, and I was you know, 17 years old, I didn't know any better. Um, and he told me that I needed to target a certain heart rate. And so I would start going uphill. And as soon as you start going uphill, your heart rate's going to shoot up. Yeah. And so I'd see that. And then I'd like slow way, 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 way down. And then I'd crest the hill and start running down the other side. And my heart rate would just plummet. And so I'd be sprinting down the hill. Um, and so if you pick out uh, a single number or like a range, if you're on a hilly course, you're going to have to effectively walk up the hills and sprint down the hills in order to really keep your heart rate in that range. And that's not really a good way to run. And that's, that's, that's a way that's probably going to, to uh, teach your body other things that are not so good um, for the sake of keeping your heart rate steady. So if you're on a hilly course, you should be honest about it. You shouldn't just, you know, completely go all the way, way up over threshold as you're going up a hill because you refuse to back off the pace entirely. Um, but at the same time, you should know that, that your heart rate's going to float up higher when you go uphill and it's going to float down below whatever your target is when, when, when you're going downhill. Um, and, and as long as the average is, is right in the right place by the end of the run, that's kind of what matters. Yeah, and I would also go so far as to say that if you really want to focus on heart rate um, and staying in those zones that are measured by heart rates, get a chest strap. Mm -hmm. You know, the wrist-based heart rate GPS is great, um, but it's, you know, it's highly variable. It's not nearly as accurate as actually just strapping that chest strap on. So mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. Um, I would recommend sure. that too. Um, the same questioner said, you know, um, if you have this target heart rate, is that like a max? And the answer for that, of course, is no. Um, and, and then she says, well, how slow is then too slow? Um, and I very much, and Michelle knows this, I very much am somebody who says there really is no such thing as too slow. Um, that, that you almost can't go too slow on an easy run. Now, I said that one time in a coaching clinic of, um, several months ago, and I was alongside another coach, um, a guy that, that I like a lot named Carl Reavers from here in Atlanta. Uh, and he said, I agree, except I would say until you start changing your gait. And I was like, okay, that that's sense. a good caveat. Yeah, that's a great okay. caveat. So, so, so the difference between going seven minute pace and eight minute pace um, is, is not significant. Um, if you're talking about going on an easy run, nine minute pace to 10 minute pace is not significant. Seven minute pace to 11 minute pace. You're probably, probably going to be changing your gait a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, so that would be a little bit too slow. And so, so I would say in terms of effort, if you're talking about easy days, there's not really a too slow. Um, as long as you're not- Take your watch, turn off the light, you know, just go run. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, well that, you know what, that actually segues into the next question that we had that was a pretty good question. So, so another person wrote uh, and asked, they said, George, I've heard you talk about the old school coaches and new school coaches, but I don't totally understand something to do with Garmin. Um, and that has to do essentially with kind of what uh, Michelle just talked about. So I've talked before about how I came from an era before data, and I was raised as an athlete in an era before data, even though I just said I was an early adopter of the it's heart rate. It's called the Timex era. So, so the Timex era. Thank you. In fact, I'm, I'm still wearing a Timex watch right now. I have my, no doubt. I mean, so at least my, it's not a Casio. So, so my, my, my casual <laughs> watch is a Timex watch, um, so, which I have not been able to, to change. I tried to change my casual watch to something nicer, and I just really like my Timex watch. But I mean, anyway. once you get the buttons, it's really hard to change like it's oh, just yeah. too good <laughs> for sure for sure and i change so i change my watch whenever i whenever i go for a run so i, I will say that the watch that i'm wearing is the longest i've ever worn the same gps watch since mm -hmm. i got my first gps watch you're wearing a koros right 
Yeah. Do you still have my other one? <laughs> yes, I do. It's charging right now because I'm taking it as my backup watch for the weekend. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm wearing the Apex 46. So I started with the 42 when it first came out and it was a little bit small, but I think I've been wearing this over two years now. It was a little um, bit small. So you gave it to me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, on. You just wanted to try the watch. Um, so, so, and I like it. I think it's cool. The battery life kind of blows me away, actually. I mean, I um, charge my watch once a month. So. Mm -hmm. And you, and you run with it in the meantime. Yeah, it's kind of incredible. I run all, yeah, and yeah. I wear it all day, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so so shout out to Koros, a non-sponsor, but here we are, you know, talking about how great they are. Anyway, um, so I think that, that when you're gathering, when, when you gather data from a workout, whether you're gathering it from a Garmin or a Koros or from a power meter on your bike or, or something else like that, um, there can come a place where you're looking so intently at the data that you're not paying attention to the way your body actually feels. Um, and, and that's problematic, number one, because the data, even though it's a good indication, it should not be the sole indication of, of the way that your body is reacting to something. Um, and number two, in the event that your data fails you and you have to race or you have to train without data, that's something you need to know how to do. Um, yeah. And so, so the difference between so-called so old school coaches, pre-data coaches, if you will, are, are a lot of them will focus or try to focus their athletes more on feel and try and focus them less on paying attention to the data and the exact heart rate and the exact power output and all that sort of thing. So-called new school coaches, that is literally all they will pay attention to. Um, so, you know, the continuum there would be just run everything by feel or, or pay attention to the data and don't pay attention to anything else. What, what yeah. I submit that, that, that you should be doing as athletes and what you should be looking for in your coaches is, is something in the middle uh, a coach that encourages you and takes into account how it is that your body is feeling and where you are physically and mentally going into a workout, but also looking at the data as another way of, of determining the quality of a workout and where you are and potentially what you're capable of. Yeah. And I think if you find the middle road, you'll find patterns over time where effort corresponds really well to pace. Um, you know, you're at the start of a 12 week buildup and a really hard effort might be a really slow pace, but when you get further into it and you get closer to goal pace and it's the same effort or, you know, it feels like less effort, then you're really get an idea of what's going on without the GPS metrics. So um, I think I barely look at my watch for easy runs. I don't even chime it on the mile or anything. So I don't either. Uh, um, and it's, they're way slower, you know, when it's 76 degrees with a hundred percent humidity in the morning, uh, I like, it's not even worth it for me. I don't even look at it when I upload it. So yeah. Um, just and, go for time. <laughs> and, and, and I think that that's smart because if you're going to get bogged down the numbers and you know, they're going to bother you, then you shouldn't look at them. Yeah. I um, mean, I remember I did a, what I, I did something in the afternoon a few weeks ago and I think I texted you. I was like, well, that sucked. And you were like, well, it's four 30 in the afternoon and it's 86 <laughs> degrees. What did you expect? Right. And I wish I had just right. never looked at the watch. <laughs> I mean, it was really horrible. It was like two minute, you know, intervals that were slower than marathon pace. I, mm -hmm. I don't know, but, um, yeah, just too much data does not work for me. So. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that happens to me on a regular basis. Um, and then, and then you know, if, if I go out and I look at what I've run on the trail and I'm like, oh my God, that was so slow, but it was hot. Blah, blah, blah. And then you fold in like the data issues around being on a trail and stuff. I mean, th th there comes it's a, a point at which, situation. yeah, <laughs> there, there comes a point at which you're, you're, you're overly reliant on the data. Now, if you're looking at the data and, 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 you, you, you want some sort of indication as to where you are and maybe what some goal and, and what your goal paces should be and, and, and as a general indication of kind of what your fitness is, I think that can be pretty helpful. 
looking sure, at the data you know, as, as, as you run in, six days a week, you only need that data, maybe one and a half to two mm -hmm. days per week. Yeah. Max. Yeah. So. I, my, my favorite use of data, honestly, for myself personally, as an athlete here, not as a coach, because as a coach, I use it a little bit differently than I do as an athlete. Um, as a coach, and Michelle can attest to this, as a coach, the first thing I'm always, I always say is, okay, well, how'd you feel? Yeah. And then if somebody says, I felt really, really good, or I felt really, really bad, then I go to the data and I say, okay, let's kind of get a sense maybe of what was going on. Let's see if, 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 if the numbers tell us something that you're not entirely aware of. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Um, and, and I find that a lot of times um, is that there's, there's um, sort of things that you didn't necessarily realize were going on physically or even like literally topographically. Like sometimes people are like, I can't figure out why I slowed down on this mile. And I look at it and I was like, well, cause the mile went up a hundred feet, you know, <laughs> sure. I and mean, stuff like that. Um, and so, so um, like sometimes that you can find things in the data, but, but my, my approach is always to start with, okay, well you tell me how it felt felt and how it went for you. And then, then let's look to the data to, to kind of, uh, scaffold in um, some understanding of, of why you felt the way you did and what that means for you going forward. Um, but, um, but yeah, for me as an athlete, the way I like using data the most is a really good indication of your fitness is how quickly your heart rate will return after you've done a hard effort. Um, and this is particularly true on the bike because it's not weight bearing. Um, and, and because you have your data sitting right in front of you when you're biking indoors. Um, and so if I do a really, really, really hard effort and my heart rate gets up to 178, if my heart rate, and then if my, if I then go into the rest interval and my heart rate drops down to 121 within 30 seconds, that's pretty awesome. I know I'm fit. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, a, I think it's a really, really, really good indication of fitness. Yeah. I um, used heart rate a lot when I was spinning for those six weeks. Um, I used heart rate more than I probably ever have just to make sure I felt like I was getting a workout um, and I was surprised how high I could get my heart rate on a spin bike. So, yeah, but. you have to, you sort of have to learn how to do it. Um, oh yeah. So, it was a whole, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. 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 You have to develop the sport specific fitness enough to be able to actually do it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and you have to learn, you know, how to push um, on, on a bike or in a different place. But, but yeah, once you learn how to do it, you can definitely, you can definitely make it happen. Um, very good. Um, all right. Next one. Let's see. Oh, this is a fun one. Uh, your favorite misconceptions about running, racing, or training? You first, Michelle. Um, I think people have a misconception that every time people go out for a run or a training run or a race, mm -hmm. like you're out there to just, you know, go to, to red line type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people, and I know there's, you know, a lot of people even within, uh, within ITL that, um, they're out there for the challenge. I mean, completing a marathon, completing an Ironman, it's a whole mm -hmm. challenge in and of itself, but mm -hmm. just getting to the finish line is enough for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. They're not racing the clock. They're not racing for a personal best. They're just kind of out there uh, doing their thing, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for a lot of people, it's also uh, just a big part of a social component of their life. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that it gets a bad rap for, oh, well, you just want to go really fast and you just want to mm -hmm. get a PR and um, you know, see how fast you can go and mm -hmm. why would anybody want to suffer like that? And, mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. I guess I mostly came to realize that in, um, 2018 when I had E. coli and I ran Chicago and I just kind of went out and cruised in a four hour marathon. And I, mm -hmm. I was like, that was really fun. Like, <laughs> you take it all in and um, I can see was, why people was, do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was so, it wasn't what I wanted, but it was such an enjoyable experience. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, it just kind of makes you wonder if, 
for the other world marathon majors. Like if I ran New York, would I want to try to run it, you know, for time or would I want to just enjoy the five boroughs? So, um, yeah, I think do, that's do it, do it twice and do both. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So gosh, getting into New York twice would be like its own thing. Well, I age up next year, so that helps. There you go. Maybe you get a qualifier. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I think that's a good one. Um, I, I, I forget how much, how enjoyable those sorts of things can be. Um, my brother-in-law who is now a senior in high school, um, last year when he was a junior. So when he was, um, no, it was when he was, he was a sophomore. So it was, it was winter a year ago. Um, so winter of 2019, um, he said, Hey, I kind of want to run a 5k. And I'm like, all right, cool. Um, and he had never run before or anything like that, but he had done some swimming and, and he's, he's generally a fit guy. And so I, we took about a month and had him do a little bit of running and he ran mostly on the treadmill because it was wintertime. And I picked out this, this mostly flat 5k that's, uh, over in the neck of the woods where you grew up, um, uh, called the polar bear 5k. Um, yeah, it's like the most famous 5k in Georgia. So, yeah. And, uh, and it's because of its location. It's near the birthplace of Michelle Frank. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and we ran it and I had a ball. Um, and, and, and it's a really ran, fun race. <laughs> it's, it's a good race. It's about one and a half. Also laps. it's Christmas spirit. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's just good. Yeah, no, we had a great time. And, and, um, we went out faster than we were planning to. And it appeared as we could probably get under 25 minutes and he wanted to walk in the last mile. I wouldn't let him walk. And, 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 and he crossed the finish line under 25 minutes and, and I was super proud of him. Yeah, um, and he awesome. and he was very proud of himself, and and I had a blast doing that. Um, and and you forget about how much how much fun that can be when you're not just you know I've I, I've run that race three times and I finished second once and I won once. I mean, and so so I, I've definitely run that race hard. Right. <laughs> it was it was nice to finish two thousandth or whatever it was sure. and, and not run it quite so hard, but to be a part of what for him was was a really important accomplishment. Um, sure. And something that I was very proud that I was able to contribute. Did he ever run another 5k? He is not. <laughs> George. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Um, it was funny because, because uh, as soon as it happened, I said, Hey, there's this five mile race happening really close to your house in a few months. You want to trade for that one? He was like, sure. And then <laughs> they <never> came. <laughs> doesn't seem like that happened. Yeah, that didn't quite happen. So, so we'll see. We'll see. Um, he's a senior now. And, uh, and, and by all means, if he, he gives me even the slightest inkling that he wants to, uh, then, then we will. Um, my, so, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you my favorite misconception um, is that, that trail racers and road racers are like two different species that shouldn't mix. That's um, right. And, and for, for me, you know, it's funny. And, and I'll tell you, I think it comes more from the trail side than it does from the road side personally. Um, but, but it's funny because, because um, as more and more people who have sort of cut their teeth road racing have started getting into trail racing, a lot of people in trail racing have, have said, well, you know, you know, you, you're, you, you want to standardize the distances and you want to have all this stuff at the finish line and, and things like that. And that's just not what trail racing is, not what trail racing is supposed to be. And, and so some people, including some race directors, have been really um, kind of resistant to, to um, the influx of additional runners to trail races, most of whom who have uh, spent time on the roads. Um, but I think there's also a whole side of road running and road racing that thinks that you only go to the trails once you feel like you're slow. You know, that okay, once fair. your fast days are over, you're mm -hmm. going to leave the marathon and you're going to mm -hmm. go run an ultra or, right. mm -hmm. 
I don't know. It's yeah. soft surfaces. It yeah. doesn't break your body down as much. So the older you get, you should go to the trail. That's, you're yeah, get that's, not, that's, that's not, that's not real running, you know, yeah. because, because the real running takes place on the road. Fair. Good point. Good point. And so, so there's definitely some tension there. Um, yeah. You know, I submit as somebody who, who my targets have always been on the road, like, so my, sure. or on the track. Um, um, but, but I've run a lot of trail races and I like running trail races, and I train a bunch on trails and I advocate for, for my athletes to train on soft surfaces and train on trails. Um, you like running on trails. Um, yeah, I, I would say my time goals are on the road, but my mm-hmm. enjoyment and distance goals mm-hmm. are like 100% on the trails. Yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 I've just found that I think that there's a lot more commonalities than we think they are. You 100% know? agree. I mean, yeah. my, my, my favorite one is that, that, that folks who run on the trail always complain that people who come in from the road want so much stuff. They want a t-shirt and they want a medal and they want, you know, an official time. And they Meanwhile, want have you seen things. what these people are wearing to run on the trail? Like well, headlamps and say, vests and I mean. It, well, okay, yeah, okay, same, same thing. I was gonna like, say, have you seen all the stuff that's available at an aid station at a trail race? Yeah, no kidding. I mean, the amount of stuff at a trail, like you go to a road race and there's water and maybe a banana. And, and you go to a trail race and there's jelly beans and there's pickles. And, and there's, there's almost always peanut butter drink. M&Ms and pretzels yeah. and yeah, cookies. peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Yeah. Oh, see, yeah. what no, is everyone great. doing on the roads? Like. Yeah. So, so, so to me, I think, I, I, I think it's just, you know, they, they, some folks really kind of want to build up this, this, this tension between the two. And I just don't really think it's there. Um, I, I think, I think they're, they're different from one another, but I think they're both great. And I think the athletes that, that do both of them are, are, are all great athletes. Yeah. So. I think we also live in an area where we see a lot more crossover and a lot less of that divisiveness, just because we don't have big mountains or, you know, really big trails, at least right mm-hmm. here. I mean, you can go to North Georgia and kind of get more out of there, but I think mm-hmm. a lot of us who mostly run our weekly mileage on the roads a lot of us will head to you know red top or kennesaw or soap creek or mm-hmm. just try to go a longer distance on the trail on the weekend so um, yeah. i feel like there's yeah. a little bit more of a i like to think so um and 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 if if you are somebody who's like intimidated by the trail if you're like no i'm a road runner i don't want to go on the trail there's a lot more opportunities to race on the trails right now than they're on the roads yeah um, there so... is something about going out on the trail though to me that just feels like that next step up. I don't know. Like, you think so? I would never want to go to Brevard and like, I have no desire to run on the road there. Like mm-hmm. I want to go into Pisgah or go into DuPont. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to be on those trails. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. yeah, I don't know. There's just something about it. That's more rewarding. I think for me mm-hmm. personally. Right on, right on. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I cut my teeth on the trails because I grew up in the shadow of Kennesaw mountain and like my high school cross country and we always ran there. And so sure. for me, like, that's just sort of where you ran. That's just sort of yeah. what you did, even though all of my racing was on the road. And so, um, um, yeah, I, uh, I, mean, I ran Kennesaw when I was 16, you know, I was out like, mm-hmm. me so. too. <laughs> right, on. right on. All right. So here's another one. Since we're talking about races and that sort of thing, uh, somebody wrote in and said, what things do y'all think would make an in-person race safe and what new rules actually make it safer? Um, I mean, what do you think about that, Michelle? This is a tough one for me because, um, you know, I haven't done a race, um, any of the races that have been run recently with the precautions, but mm-hmm. I would say that it almost seems to me like the biggest 
uh, risk is the starting corrals. Mm -hmm. um, just a massive gathering of people at the start of a race and people mm -hmm. start filling them up, you know, 30 minutes before. So mm -hmm. I would think that if there was, if I was a race director and I wanted to bring a big road, raid, road race back, I'd probably follow a lot of what we've seen in terms of the staggered start. Yeah. Um, I do like that, you know, there's the mask precaution until you start running. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a little bit overkill to have to put the mask up over your face if you're passing a runner or if you're being passed. Mm -hmm. But I think probably the best way to mitigate risk and because it's really the only time in a big race that everyone's all together is that starting line. Um, so, I mean, that does take away from the actual racing. I mean, you don't know, you know, you're essentially just going with the clock unless they do a six feet apart start, you know, for the elites and then everyone staggers behind. But I think that is probably what we're going to see a lot of when a lot of the road races return. Um, mm -hmm. so. I think so too. I think and I so don't too. think there's a good answer because you no, know, if people, if race directors have this figured out, then we would be seeing more races come back on the mm -hmm. calendar. But mm -hmm. so far we're just seeing a continuation of postponement, um, you know, well into spring 2021. I mean, Boston's right. not even opening registration for next April. So I think it's a great question. I, I think there's no, you know, solidified answer yet. Yeah. Um, Rumors are spreading about Tokyo 2021, which is supposed to be March 8th. Um, and, seems and, highly unlikely. Yeah. And, and <laughs> so um, they haven't let anybody register for it yet. I wasn't planning to do it in 2021 anyway. I'm hoping to defer 2022. Um, but but well-founded rumors are swirling that they're probably not going to have, they're probably going to do the same thing again in 2021. They're going to have a yeah. leads-only race um, because they also have the Olympics. They don't want to do anything that might cause a spike that could threaten the Olympics. Sure. That sort of thing too. So yeah, um, yeah I, I, I would sort of put um, safety precautions into two categories. Um, I'll start with the short one um, and that's volunteers. So I think that you would need to limit the, the contact that volunteers have with, with athletes. Um, and so that means at the start, that means the aid stations, that means anything else like that. And so, so you, you definitely need to kind of limit that contact um, that, that goes on there. And, and to the, the greatest degree possible, you need to make that contact safe. In other words, you need to have your volunteers masking. Um, and so, so I think that's one thing. The other thing, the, the big blanket thing, and this definitely is what Michelle just said, um, is just any place where there's crowds, reduce the crowding. Like just, just any time when people are, are congregating together, you just have to take steps to make sure that's not happening. And so that means not gathering people in the start. That means not gathering people at the finish. That means right. not having an award ceremony. That means not right. having, you know, that, mean, that means doing packet pickup in a different way so that people aren't waiting in line to, to, to you know, before the start to, to pick up their packet and all that sort of thing. Um, that means that during the race itself, that means having fewer participants so that the field actually spreads out more. Right. Sure. Um, and so all of those things um, are the things that to me are legitimate safety precautions that that races need to do in order for in order for them to be safe. Uh, and I'm, I'm saying that very, very specifically, very intentionally in order to be safe, not to make me feel safe, because making me feel safe. Like that, that's not what it's safe. about. Like <laughs> right. you need to be safe. Like sure. all of these precautions you see people taking um, and all these precautions that races are doing, they're not doing it to make people feel comfortable. They're not doing it because they're trying to, to, to appease people's fears and that sort of thing. They're trying to do it because it's the safe and right thing to do in the midst of a global pandemic. 
Yeah. Um, and I think that that's something that a lot of people, when we talk about like measures that are taken, not just by race directors or by, by, by training groups, but you know, by, by policymakers and restaurants and everything else like that. I mean, it's not about trying to make somebody feel comfortable. Right. It's about being safe. I also think depending on the distance and depending on the weather, I mean, you can eliminate a lot of the aid stations. Like a lot of it is superfluous. Mm -hmm. I mean, people can carry, there's a lot of ways to carry a lot of water. There's a lot more ways to carry lots of different types of fuel. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would say, you know, you could have safety stations out there to make sure runners are okay. But mm -hmm. I mean, for a 5k or a 10k, I mean, mm -hmm. maybe on July 4th, people need the water stops, but do we mm -hmm. really, you mm -hmm. know, can we just yeah. carry a 18 ounce handheld and do it ourselves. Um, I, I, see, I think you can. I think that, that, too. <laughs> that if, the, if the if the race director says, look, this is what we're doing now, um, because the safe thing to do is to limit interaction between volunteers and runners, and we can't figure out a good way to feed you water for the for the purpose of this, we're going to require everybody to, to be at the starting line with some sort of hydration system. Ultra yep. races all do that. Yep. Ultra races all require people to be on the starting line with hydration systems, period. Uh, and they say, if you don't have one, you can't run. Um, and so th there's no reason why much shorter than ultra races can't require the same thing. Um, if you're going to come to this race that where, where the high temperature is going to be 85 degrees, you need to bring some sort of hydration system with you and you need to have it with you on the starting line. Sure. Um, I, I don't think there's any reason why, why a race can't, can't reasonably do that. Um, and so, so that, that's any, anything like that to reduce crowds, to reduce contact between volunteers and racers. To me, that's, that's, that, that, that's what, that what needs to happen um, in order to make a race safe. Not to make me feel safe, but to make a race <laughs> actually safe. We know, George, you don't yeah. care if you feel safe. You just I know, safe. no, I know, no, I, but I'm kind of triggered by that right now, frankly, honestly. Yeah, I can, um, yeah. So, so, but because I've had just too many people say to me, oh, well, we want to do things that'll make people feel comfortable. It's not about making people feel comfortable. It's about, it's about being, being safe. safe. It's about trying to curb the spread of a global pandemic. Um, and so, so yeah, um, all right. Um, let's see. Uh, you want to talk about all these Tour de France questions? No. Yes, of course you do. So I right, humor me for a minute. All right. So, uh, in the Tour de France preview, you talked about how so-and-so had a strong team. Why does that matter? You also said there could be a team drama if you have a lot of good riders. So what's the difference between a strong team and a team with drama? All right. So here's the thing in cycling. Um, you can save if you're drafting behind someone else, you can save anywhere from 30 to 50% of your energy. Um, if somebody else is, is breaking the wind in front of you and you are riding right behind them, um, you have to put out significantly less power in order to be able to, to, to maintain the same speed. Um, and so it's significant in cycling too, if you don't, because of the high speeds. If you don't believe me, next time you're in your car, stick your hand out the window when you're going about 30 miles an hour, put your hand above the mirror and then put it behind the mirror and you will feel a profound difference in the wind resistance that comes. Um, if you are drafting behind another rider, you will, you, it's literally the difference between like a fast walk and like a hard run. Um, and so if you are drafting behind somebody else, you can save a whole lot of energy for the critical moments of the race. If you have a strong team, that team will set themselves up in front of you and you will be able to draft off that team and they will ensure that you never have to do any of the extra work and go really, 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 really hard until the critical moment of the race comes. And when that critical moment comes, if you have a strong team that's been protecting you and helping you save all of your energy, you're going to be able to have more energy to capitalize on that critical moment of the race. 
like the last 500 meters of a major climb or some time trial that comes towards the end of the race or something else like that. And so, so when you talk about having a strong team, that's what you're talking about. You're talking about a, a team that, that can handle the rigors of a race and protect you as a team leader um, uh, so that you're not using so much energy that you can't actually take advantage of the critical moments in the race. Now, the reason why it matter, the reason why a strong team is a team without drama is because in order to do that, if I am a helper, if I'm a so-called domestique on a team, and my sole job is to help Michelle get to the finish line faster, That's so she's just going to sit behind be. me. Yeah, right. <laughs> so she's just going to sit behind me, and I'm going to be working 30 to 50 percent harder than she is at any given time, right? If I'm not invested in that, if I don't believe in Michelle, if I think maybe Michelle should be the one working for me, um, then that's going to cause drama and that's going to make me not want to invest myself as much in, in that really, really, really hard effort that's necessary for me to protect Michelle from, from the rigors of the race until the moment when she needs to capitalize on those critical opportunities. Does that make sense? Makes sense you, to me. Michelle, you tell me. Does it make sense to you? Yeah, it makes total sense to me. Yeah. Um, um, so when you talk about a strong team, you're talking about I mean, how often do you do see that. strong teams, you know, get taken down on a, on a stage because of team drama? Well, so it depends on the team. So, so um, there are some teams that are really, really good at not having drama. And that's one thing that we talked about. There are some, like the, the team Enios has been really, really good about not having drama. Lance Armstrong's teams back in the day were really good at not having drama. Sure. Like everybody was like, it's all about Lance They were Lance all Armstrong. in on Lance. <laughs> they were. They were. And, yeah. and he, he enforced that and he took advantage of it. Um, and, and, and that was a good thing. That's one of the reasons why he won seven tours in a row. Um, it's because he had a really strong team that was willing to sacrifice all of their own opportunities for him. And they believed that if they delivered him to those critical moments of the race, not as tired as everybody else, he was going to be able to capitalize on those and win the race and split the prize money with them. Um, they were invested in that. Sure. Um, and so, so that mattered. Um, but if you have people that don't agree with one another or think that maybe that, that maybe I should be the one that everybody's working for, maybe I should be the one that everybody's investing in, um, then, then that causes a decay in the team culture and people aren't going to be willing to work for whoever it is they're supposed to work for. Yeah. I mean, but, it works the same in corporate America. Like mm-hmm. you can only be, you know, as strong as your weakest link. So, mm-hmm. It's interesting too, the, this Tour de France, we talked about during the preview that, that riders were coming in in more varying and uncertain states of fitness because they haven't raced for six months, really. Right. Um, and, and this Tour de France, you can, you can see that. Um, and it's actually, it's made the hilly stages, the mountainous stages more exciting because no teams are so strong that they can control the whole thing. And so by the time you actually get to the critical moments of the race, nobody has any teammates left and all the top people are fighting against one another. And so it's kind of exciting and fun to watch. It's made the sprint stages like today a little bit more chaotic because if you have one team that can control the whole thing and just deliver their sprinter right up to the line and he wins, it's, it's safer. Sure. Um, but, but if none of the teams are, are, are notably stronger than the other ones, it makes for a more chaotic finale to a race. Um, so yeah, it's kind of interesting to see. Um, like I said, it makes for, makes for more exciting watching, but yeah. Um, 
Uh, we had a few, a few other people. Who does George like to win the Tour de France? Yellow, green, polka dot, and best young rider. Um, this is obviously <laughs> from somebody who did not listen to our Tour de France preview, but I, I, I will update these now that we're halfway through. Uh, my pick for the yellow is still Primoz Roglic, and he is currently in the yellow jersey. He's my pick to win the overall race. Uh, the green jersey, after what happened today, um, my pick is Sam Bennett. Um, and so he's currently in the lead, and I think he's probably going to win as well. Polka dot jersey is, a, is probably the one that I think is most up for grabs. Uh, that's the best in the mountains. The same guy has had it for a while. My only certainty when it comes to the polka dot jersey is that Benoit Castenfois, who currently has it, uh, is not going to be the person who finishes the race with the polka dot jersey. Um, and the best young rider, uh, the person under 23, it's either going to be Tadej Pogachar or Egan Bernal. Um, and there's a pretty good chance that one of them might actually end up in on the podium as well. And so uh, it's going to be one of those two guys currently Bernal. Is, is, is leading that. Um, and I will finally say one other thing about the Tour de France and the something that I think you will appreciate, Michelle. <laughs> for years and years and years, for as long as I've been watching cycling, there's always the, the, the male cyclist who won the stage or is getting the yellow jersey, the award ceremony, won the race. It wasn't the Tour de France, it was everywhere. They would go up on the stage and they'd be flanked by two models, two podium girls. And the podium girls would give them flowers and give them a trophy and they'd give them kisses and you had this eye candy here and they'd clap. Oh, so are we that. done with that now? Have we gotten yeah. rid of the podium girls? So, so they have now, this year in the Tour de France, there is a podium girl and there's a podium guy. Yeah, there is. I, I think it's great. I am here for it. Um, and, and what's more, they, they are, as they have always kind of done, they're coordinating the, the clothing that both the podium girl and the podium guy wear with whatever the award that's being given is. So when, whenever they're saying, okay, today's yellow jersey wearer is Primoz Roglic, and everybody applauds for him, the, the podium girl and the podium guy come out, and the podium guy is wearing like a yellow suit. <laughs> and the podium girl is wearing like a yellow sundress. And they're changing them up from day to day. It's good. Um, so it's fun. Um, and yeah, I, I am... It's, it, it's fun to watch. Um, and, it's, and it's nice to see that this archaic, um, quaint- uh, Careful uh, with your word choice Tradition, <laughs> yeah, like, like and, and misogynistic uh, uh, approach that they've had to, to award ceremonies over the course of the past, well, forever, um, is, is going away. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to see. <laughs> Um, it's also cool too because they're masking so much at the Tour de France and all that sort of thing that that uh, they're all wearing matching masks. So, so so the polka dot jersey pair and the podium guy and podium girl they're all wearing polka dot masks and everything like that. So yeah, it's fun. Tour de France is great. You got to get on board here, Michelle. I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm telling you. Okay. All right. So let's do one more question for Michelle and George, and then I'm going to drop in the Patrick segment, and then we're going to call it a night. Does that sound good? Yeah. What's my favorite right. workout? I was going to say that that'd probably be a good one to finish on. So we will, <laughs> we will have questions for George and Michelle on some other occasion too. So if, uh, if we didn't quite get to your question, send it again. Um, but, uh, but yeah, somebody wrote in and said there was an entire podcast about George and Patrick's favorite workouts. What's Michelle's favorite workout? <laughs> That's a great question. And actually, as soon as I sent you that question, now I really want to know. Michelle, what's what your favorite workout? What do you workout? think it is? I don't, I, I don't know. You have no idea. <laughs> I, I don't want to guess because if I guess wrong, you will never stop telling me that I guessed wrong. So I, so I'm not going to guess. This is not fun for me then. <laughs> all, right, all right. All right. I'll guess. Give me some hints. Okay. Tell me this. Are, are we talking about only a running workout? Um, well, do you want to talk about erging or something? I don't know. I don't know. No. 
Yes, okay. we're talking so, about. So I was just making sure you're not. I'm, I'm not going to guess. You I mean, know, I love winning the spin is, class, but is, that's not. Well, see, that's I mean, a, that's what I was saying. Like, I don't want to guess your favorite workout is six by eight hundred. You're like, no, my favorite is Orange Theory. Like, I didn't want that. To happen. <laughs> like, all right, so no, so, so, so we're talking about your favorite running workout. Is it a hard workout or is it a more relaxed workout? It's a, definitely a hard workout. Ooh, Why right. is this so hard for you? It's not hard. It's not hard. I just don't. So then, what's the answer? The answer is. I mean, to be honest, there is a range to this answer. What? <laughs> it's not what is your favorite range of workouts. It's what's your favorite workout. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think your favorite workout is, is um, long, hard stretches at marathon pace. So good. So I think anything, first of all, I don't want to do anything under 1,200 meters. Like even mm. a mile is terrifying to me. I mean, I lose, I literally do not sleep the night before these 12 by 200 and, you know, like six by a mile. Like I want to go, you know, three by two mile or, you know, three by 10 minutes or just something like that at, yeah, more of a marathon pace um, or faster. I would say the most favorite workout I've ever done um, was building up to Boston in 2013. And it was out and back in columns drive three times. So five miles, so three by five miles at marathon pace. And then, and each time I took a gel and, and water, you know, I had 90 to 120 seconds to rest. Um, and then I did another two and a half miles. So, and I know you don't coach like that and you would never send me out for 17 and a half miles at marathon pace, but um, I would say, yeah, the longer, harder, uh, closer to marathon pace type stuff, every day, any day, all year, no matter what I'm training for, over the 200, 400, 800. Oh, six by 800, did you say that? No. And I, I, I have nightmares about that. I, I, I did not say that as a guess. I threw that out as an example. No, I know, of but I mean, and maybe, maybe that's <laughs> what I need to be doing more of because that's the stuff that scares me. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I like to get on the track and I can, when it's that type of workout, I know when it's gonna go good just by the warm up, mm -hmm. um, which is, which is kind of fascinating to me. It's also a little bit terrifying, but. Oh, see, I don't feel that way at all. If I have a bad warm up, I'm like, this is probably gonna be a good race or it's probably Man, gonna be a good workout. If like, I can like, warm like our up friend and Lauren, I have... Like our friend Lauren Fogarty says, bad rehearsal, good performance. Yeah, that, I don't like that. I want a good rehearsal and a good performance. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think for me, I, I'm happy to reach the pain threshold, but I definitely want to draw it out um, as long as kind of like low and slow. Yeah. So I think, I think a lot of endurance athletes are that way. I think a lot yeah. of people do marathons and Ironmans are that way. Um, the, the, they want, and, they, and that's all they ever want to do. Um, and, and I find a lot of times when, when athletes come to me, um, if they're experienced in long course races, that often is all they have ever done. Um, yeah. and, and I start telling them to do shorter things, um, particularly if they're older, um, and, uh, and, and they don't always like that. Um, but to me, that's low hanging yeah. fruit. If that's something you've never done before, you you can have some significant improvements by doing those things. I just find it hard to, you know, I feel like if you're going to drop down to this, you know, mile or 1200 or 800, the paces, and I feel like I just get stuck at, I, like I have only so fast that I could go, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I feel you on that. I can appreciate so, that. Right on. All right, Michelle, that was a good way to end it. <laughs> Thanks everybody for sending us questions. Um, let's drop in the piece on Patrick right here. All right. We have with us a familiar face, Patrick Ollinger. Welcome back, buddy. Uh, good to be here. Always fun chatting with you. 
I shouldn't say welcome back. It's not like you went anywhere. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're still like a number one guy on the podcast. It's just that, you know, you're focusing on other things in your life here in 2020 rather than being on the podcast every week. How's everything going, bud? It's good. Well, it's funny you mentioned like, oh, it, you haven't been gone a while, but the way 2020 is, I, I can't sometimes <laughs> tell the difference between being away for two days versus two months. So That's right. That's right. Two and podcast episodes feels like a lifetime. <laughs> exactly. Right on, right on. Well, I brought you on because, uh, because we had uh, some listener questions and we're answering a lot of listener questions this week. And uh, uh, a listener reached out and, and wanted to know a little bit more details about your base training. So we had talked about that a lot, about how we're all kind of doing different things in order to, to cope with 2020 and the upended schedules and routines. Uh, and you had said, I'm just kind of going old school base training. Um, and mm-hmm. um, of course, base training connotes uh, the idea that you're doing longer miles and you're there almost entirely, if not entirely easy. Um, but we had at least one listener that wanted to know a few more details about that. So appreciate you coming on and answering a few questions for us, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and this is such an interesting kind of topic, an interesting time frame because it, it's, you know, usually we have a goal race in mind, so we don't want to take too many chances. Mm-hmm. So we want to kind of engage in the tried and true processes and procedures and workouts we've done in the past, mm-hmm. maybe sprinkle in a few new ones, but 85% of it's the same as what we've always done, right? And if mm-hmm. we change 10 to 15% a year, mm-hmm. you might see change over three or four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the most part, from year to year, or season to season, it looks pretty simple. But right. this year, it's been kind of a total overhaul just because I didn't have the uh, pressure or the goals of when to hit a target race or have a mm-hmm. target goal in mind. So it's been kind of an interesting perspective from just kind of my exercise science and, and running nerd self to kind of you know, try something entirely new, mm-hmm. kind of throw out the playbook entirely, mm-hmm. and then see how I reacted and see what I liked about it. Right on. Yeah, and, and I think it's worth mentioning too here just a little bit about your running history and sort of what mm-hmm. I know about you and your running history. So Patrick was a high school runner and then was a collegiate runner. And then, as we've talked about before, took a little bit of time off after college and then was inspired after the, the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013 to come out back and train for the Boston Marathon in 2014 and then just kind of kept it going from there, right? Um, and I want to say probably around like 2017, 2018 is where you really kind of started breaking through and getting a whole lot faster and stuff like that. Is that That's probably fair to say, right? That is spot on. So, and and to add even more detail there. So in high school and college, for folks who might not be familiar, um, races are a mile, Mm -hmm. two mile, 5k is the longest that you run Mm -hmm. in high school. Mm -hmm. In college, I was a miler. Mm -hmm. So I was always training for a race that even, I mean, should never last more than four and a half minutes, Mm -hmm. like maximum. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's a very different mindset, very different approach than training for a marathon, which I mean, four and a half minutes into a marathon, you're not even close to done. Right. And to kind of answer your question too, about the the timeline from the Boston marathon bombing and when I first joined back to now. So I first ran, I ran for the first time in 2013 since graduating college. There's about a four year gap or so. Mm. And my whole goal was just to be able to run from beginning to end 26 miles. So I had to just train in like a five month period. I went from zero miles to marathon in like five months or so. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And to, to be able to qualify for the next marathon. And my whole goal was I'm going to do this 2014 Boston and then I'm going to go back to being a couch potato. I don't, I don't need to do this. <laughs> I, I don't need to go back to being in college and running every day. Yeah. And um, 
Shocker, it didn't turn out that way. Mm-hmm. But I ran poorly at 2014 Boston, but was like, okay, this was a fun experience. I really don't want to have my last race be a crash and burn where I hit mm-hmm. the wall. Mm-hmm. And so I'll come back in 2015 and then I'll call it a day. And then I'll mm-hmm. kind of hang up the running spike, so to speak. So you kind of see there was a progression from just mm-hmm. trying to be able to run from 26 miles mm-hmm. to, okay, I'd like to run, you know, a Boston qualifier for a second time mm-hmm. to then I ran 2015 Boston. and was like, Hey, this is a lot of fun. Maybe I can mm-hmm. run like four days a week mm-hmm. and, you know, really do like tempo runs and track workouts and, and make this a bit more of a, a lifelong hobby. Mm-hmm. And then I just kind of kept layering on um, mm-hmm. from there. And then 2017 was when I finally kind of sat down with pen and paper and was like, okay, I enjoy this. I want to make this a real lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can see there's kind of been a progression from, I just want to run this one race, do this one event to, I want to make this a lifelong hobby. Mm-hmm. And I want to not just train for this season's marathon, but for marathons to come in years to come. Right on. And, and I think that that's your history, I think is important to mention because even though you had, you know, six years of being a runner in six or more years of being a runner in, in high school and in college, um, and then you have, you've had this, you know, six year period here, you haven't had like that real long period of time where you just built an aerobic engine. Um, yes. like, like a lot of people might assume that you have when you say, oh, well, I've been a runner since the early 2000s, right? I've been a runner since for, for 15 plus years. So people would assume, oh, so you have a really big aerobic engine, but you don't because like you just said, for one thing, you know, in high school, high school doesn't totally count. Um, but, but in high school, you know, your runs are short, your races are short and, and you don't end up doing a whole lot of really long zone two type running mm-hmm. in college for reasons that we don't really need to delve into, but it's certainly related to the fact that you, you race short distances there. You didn't really put in a whole lot of miles in college, like easy aerobic miles in college either. Right. I did. Right. That, that was a difference between your collegiate experience and mine. Um, right. and so, so you were graduated from college a period during which a lot of people would have run just thousands upon thousands of miles in mm-hmm. zone two, building that aerobic engine. You were graduating from college actually without that. Um, oh, for and, sure. then, and then you had your couch potato period. And then you had two or three years of, like you just said, you know, running only a few days a week and just trying to finish and, and just kind of still, you know, enjoying your life and all that sort of thing. Um, before you really kind of said, all right, let me start, actually build an aerobic engine. And so, so you had been a runner for more than 10 years before you really started putting in the sort of mileage that would, that would help your endurance in your zone two areas. And so I think that's kind of important to keep in mind. And so, so when you think about all the different things that a runner has to do in order to perform well in a race, I would say when you and I certainly met in like 2016, the one that was really missing for you was that aerobic endurance mm-hmm. was the stuff you get from just going out and piling up the miles from doing long runs and all that sort of thing. And I, I still think that, that I, I think you're catching up <laughs> for lack yeah. of ways. If back of better saying, I, I think that that's starting to catch up with the other parts of you. Um, but one of the reasons why I think that this has been a really good time for you training wise, obviously 2020 is not a great time period, but good, good time for you training wise is that, that you actually have been able to focus on, your biggest weakness. And unlike most people, your biggest weakness is actually just piling up miles and running easy. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yes, exactly. Exactly. And a lot of folks can probably 
um, appreciate this too. A lot of it gets down to time and timelines, hmm. right? Um, I, I was a varsity runner from my first month of being a high school runner all the way through my final race in college. So I was a scoring member every time, mm-hmm. freshman year, high school, freshman year, college. I never had a red shirt. I never had a chance to say, hey, let's invest a year mm-hmm. to put in this long, slow mileage mm-hmm. so that we can reap benefits in year two. Because mm-hmm. as we talked about on this podcast, easy running really benefits you year two. Mm-hmm. So if you have a goal three months out, six months out, it's not, it, you don't get quite the same return on investment as like a hard track workout or a long tempo run. And so that plays a part in it too, as well. And that's why I'm in such a unique position, as you mentioned, compared to most runners where if you had heard, oh, he started running in 2002, he's probably got thousands and thousands of miles of easy running. And that just wasn't quite the case because I hadn't put in that kind of long-term investment. Right. And and I I think that there's, I I, I don't think that you're totally unique in that. Um, Right. But I would say that, 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 when you and I met, that's not what I would have expected. Oh, you've been a runner since 2002. Okay, you had a little bit of an off period in there. But, but, but I, I, I would have presumed, or I did presume, that you had thousands of miles on mm-hmm. your legs, um, like I would have when I had been a runner for more than 10 years, right? Um, right. And, and, and like I think most people do if they're a collegiate distance runner who's focused on the 5,000 meters or the 10,000 meters like I was. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so I think that's kind of important to mention not only to kind of mention sort of where you are and, and why it is that you chose to take this approach, you know, given mm-hmm. the time that you had, cause you're not commuting and, and the fact that you didn't have a race, like, you know, the clock ticking on a race for you. Um, right. but, but also, um, to say that, that the result that you're going to get, the bump that you're going to get from this, I think it's going to be great. I think it's gonna be good. I think it's gonna be better than what, like the bump that I would get from it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Cause like yeah. I've, I've already put in the trial of miles that you've been putting in right now. Do right. you know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, so, so, um, and so I think that's, that's kind of an important asterisk to put here at the outset too, for anybody who's listening to say, all right, so Patrick really has, has, has benefited a lot from this time. Y- your mileage may vary. Like, like you may not benefit the same way that, that, that Patrick has because you have a different history than he does. Yeah. Right. And that's what makes it so unique is because mm-hmm. we all have different running journeys. So mm-hmm. we're all coming from different places. We've all put in kind of, you know, some people played soccer for a long time before mm-hmm. coming to running, all that kind of thing. So it, it's definitely interesting. And that's a big reason why I focused on easy running. Once it was clear, I didn't have any immediate goals because, you know, it was interesting. Like when I would use those like running calculators on like runningworld.com, where it was like, put in your 5k and we'll tell mm-hmm. you estimated marathon. Mine would be like pretty even, like mile 5K, 10K. Mm-hmm. And then my marathon just fell off a cliff, right? Or right. if I put in my marathon, mm-hmm. they'd be like, oh, well, you're like a 17, 18 minute 5K. Mm-hmm. You know, because I didn't have that base running. I didn't have that kind of long distance skill um, that takes that the kind of long-term investment. Right, right, exactly. All right, so, so speaking of the long-term investment. So, so mm-hmm. right on. Um, so let's talk about, so your, the, the weekly structure of it over the course of the past several months here. Um, what has your weekly structure looked like in terms of like long days, medium long days, rest days, all that sort of thing? Yeah. So it's kind of fallen in two parts. So part one was in March after or March, April, after I'd already done the marathon March 1st. And we kind of got news that this Corona thing was going to have us on lockdown for a few weeks, mm-hmm. you know, so we thought. Mm-hmm. And so my thinking was, all right, I'll just run easy every day, six days a week. I ran six days a week prior, pre-COVID. 
I'll just run six days a week now, same six days. Um, no track workouts, no tempo runs, strides maybe once or twice a week when I felt like it. No real structure there. Um, and that was that. And I just did that because I was like in this time of uncertainty. I want to make my decision making easy for when I run. Mm -hmm. I will run eight miles, which is kind of my standard easy run. Mm -hmm. And then I have a nice little loop around my house where if I get back and I want to add a mile on a loop, I can do that nice and easy. So the whole goal there was there's a lot of emotional uncertainty. There's a lot of mental uncertainty. So then let's make running easy. Let's kind of remove any decision making from running. Let's just keep it easy. Keep it light. Make it something that doesn't require any decision making. I just put on my shoes. I go. And then when I get back close to my house, I can decide if I want to put an extra mile or two. Mm -hmm. And that was that for the first month or two. How did you how did you decide what was easy? Were you looking at your heart rate or was it perceived exertion or what? Yeah, so I uh, perceived exertion. Uh, I would just have a podcast on and would just zone out. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because I would do a lot of the same loops over and over in my neighborhood. And I would notice that I generally every easy run would fall within about a 10 second range and kind of in terms of like miles or to me minutes per mile, mm -hmm. you know, um, some, some days would be a little slower mm -hmm. and more often than not, it was more geared towards how work had treated me the previous day <laughs> or how yeah. stressful I was or how bad the news was, was that morning that I read mm -hmm. before even going on the run. Mm -hmm. But I just fell into a nice rhythm, you know, by just zoning out, listening to a podcast, I would, um, run with my GPS and, you know, it would beep at me at the end of the mile. But other than that, I didn't even look at my pace. And it tended to fall into a nice structure, which is pretty similar to what we've talked about in the past, where it would be about a minute 15, a minute 20 per mile slower than my marathon race pace, just mm -hmm. to give you an idea of kind of what it looked like. Mm -hmm. But the but, key but, was but to not look shooting, at it. You weren't shooting for that, though. That's nope. just kind of where it was. Yeah. It, it was just kind of where it fell. Mm -hmm. Right on. You know, right kind on. of naturally. So that was, that was phase one. Was there a phase two? So then phase two was kind of like June, July, mm -hmm. um, when we realized, okay, we're going to be here a while, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Fall races started to get canceled. Mm -hmm. And I remember just thinking, okay, let's train for a spring race. Let's just mm -hmm. assume things get better and we can run in the spring. Mm -hmm. um, or better yet, let, I, I thought to myself, let's put in the base training so that once we find out we can race, I can kind of flip a switch and train for three months and kind of mm -hmm. get back into that marathon shape. Mm -hmm. So then from there, I kind of sat down, kind of blank notebook, piece of notebook paper, kind of blank sheet and said, okay, previously I used to run, have a set, set seven day schedule because mm -hmm. I had to be at work at a certain time on Monday. I had a meeting at a certain time on Wednesday, right? Mm -hmm. Like I had kind of this structured um, places I had to be on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I thought to myself, well, what the heck? Every day is mostly the same now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't have to be at a certain place, you know, at, at a certain day, quite the same I, I usually would. So why don't we adopt a 10-day training cycle mm -hmm. and see how that works? Mm -hmm. And so then I would run usually nine days on, take a day off, and then I'd start back again. So that 10th day I would take off. And it would usually just be um, an alternation of like medium long run medium, long run, easy run. So two is usually kind of a uh, divide up into like sets of three, mm -hmm. where it usually be two medium long runs, easy run. And then sometimes I throw in on um, like a fart lick to mm -hmm. substitute for a medium run. 
Gotcha. And so, mm-hmm. and, and, and let, let's to, just for terminology sake, you mentioned eight miles a little while ago. We might as well say eight miles for you is about an hour long run. Excellent. Right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, and so, so when you were going medium, long run, medium, long run, easy run, when that was sort of like your three day cycle, mm-hmm. um, medium long runs, like what, an hour and 15 minutes, something like that. Exactly. I usually classify medium long run as 10 miles or more, mm-hmm. or do you get back to time? It's more like hour 15. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so like, so you'd run like an hour and 15, hour and 15, hour 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 mm-hmm. 15 hour 15 hour hour 15 hour 15 off yeah right something like that mm-hmm. right. very good yeah. very good i see Sorry. um and then did you were you strategic about when you put in started maybe sometimes substituting in a couple of fartlets and stuff like that yeah so um that started to get strategic in july when mm-hmm. i because st- at first i was doing the six days easy running so mm-hmm. it was a slight bump in mileage mm-hmm. then when i was doing nine straight days of running day off mm-hmm. now we're looking at blocks where i might hit 80 miles 80 almost 90 miles in a week mm-hmm. so i didn't want to do anything hard or intense quite yet mm-hmm. until we got to august where i could say okay now i'm starting to do this kind of week in and week out and get into nice flow right. and that's when i started incorporating some fart licks mm-hmm. uh, specifically i incorporated pete ray's favorite fart lick which is two and a half on one and a half off mm-hmm. um, and that was a lot of fun because and the reason i also picked fart lick as well is I wanted to keep the theme of kind of no pressure, mm-hmm. no pressure and no thinking about it mm-hmm. because I am a very analytical person. I love the spreadsheets. I love like 2400s cause it's like the same standard distance every time, every rep, right? Like I love just kind of hitting the exact same split over and over again and kind of being very precise each lap. And even each 100, I check my splits over and over. Mm-hmm. But this kind of prevented me from going down that path cool. because a fart lick, you just say, when the buzzer goes off, run fast Mm -hmm. and the buzzer goes again slow it down that's it you don't have Mm -hmm. to look at your watch you don't have to look at pace it's fun running Mm -hmm. um so were were you going like hard easy or were you doing like hard float uh hard float okay hard float and i'd also do what i one of my new favorite techniques since since i have that history of not having great base training Mm -hmm. my my most dreaded workout was always one where you warm up for five miles Mm-hmm. do five miles of tempo then mm-hmm. cool down for another four miles right mm-hmm. where it's just this like long hour and a half or so of mm-hmm. you know if not intense running you're at least anticipating intense running or fatigued from the intense running you just completed <laughs> right? right um and so i like to do those to almost kind of conquer my biggest fear and say look i can do this i've done this in the, i've done this before um in this space where there's not as much pressure to hit so, a so you split. started folding those in in the last couple of months as well Exactly. It's like all, Mm -hmm. yeah. So like all of my fart licks, five miles of warm up, 20, 30 minutes of fart lick. Mm -hmm. And then like, you know, the the back third or so is cool down. Right. So, so, so the last few weeks then might be like your 10 day cycle might be like medium run or medium, long, medium, long, easy, medium, long fart lick, easy, medium, Mm -hmm. long, medium, long, easy off something like that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Very good. Very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed that in there, there's not a long run in there. Have you been doing long runs? So, you know, what's interesting. Um, I've done a few long runs, mm-hmm. not as much as you would think, given the mileage. Um, mm-hmm. Mostly because I've gotten into such a routine of just waking it up and doing that hour to hour, 20 hour 30 mm-hmm. that I haven't quite made it a priority. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like the days that I do are days that something goes wrong. I end up having to squeeze <laughs> or cut it short, mm. um, to like meet a meeting time or something like that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I've done a few long runs, but it's, it's been pretty interesting. Like the longest long run I've done so far is 17 miles. And I know I'm spitting out all these numbers. I'm sorry. It's not, not great copy or not always the most relevant, but the better way to put it is my long run has almost never exceeded 20% of my weekly mileage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, I think, um, yeah, that's a good way of saying it. That's um, pretty and, low when you really look at kind of, right. you know. And, and 17 miles for you, we, could, we should also say is somewhere right in the neighborhood of two hours as well. And so, exactly. so your longest long runs have been two hours, which is a long, exactly. long run. I mean, that's, that's, that's not a short long run, but, um, mm-hmm. but, but, but it's not like you've been going out for two and a half to three hour runs like you might be some other time. Um, exactly, we're, we're exactly. And training for a marathon. And, and part of the reason for that too is one is because I, I don't have that marathon I have to hit. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, well, I don't want to knock myself out for half the day with a two and a half hour run. Mm-hmm. And also the, when you have a, you know, hour 20 run the next day, you don't have the same need mm-hmm. quite so much to run two and a half hours. You can run for two hours, pop back up, and run an hour 20 the next day. Mm-hmm. Very good. All right. So last questions I have from me that, that actually came from the listeners um, had to, had to do with how basically where you are now, as far as mileage and stuff goes compared to where you were before. And so you did a marathon on March 1st. And so you mm-hmm. had this marathon build on March 1st. You had that period of time between like March and April basically, and like probably into May, I would imagine, when you were running like an hour at a time, you're running like six days, six days a week, that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so where you are right now, and so you said that you've kind of gotten up to this place where you're running like 80 or 90 miles a week, which is fantastic. Um, and so 80, 90 miles a week for you, that's probably 10 to 11 hours worth of, of running every mm-hmm. week, of, of solely running every single week. Um, how does that compare to, say, what you were doing in the build over the winter headed towards that marathon in, in March. Yeah. So I would say, so for the build up to the marathon in March and even for the marathons, the two or three years previous, it generally had a pattern of five days of running for an hour and then a six day of running for two to two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the cycle I was in or the the pattern I was in. Mm -hmm. And so you can see I've added on roughly about three, maybe even almost four hours of running per Mm -hmm. week just because every Monday, every Tuesday, every Wednesday, instead of commuting to a run, running, commuting to the shower, showering, commuting to the shower, to work, mm-hmm. then being at my desk at start time, mm-hmm. I wake up, run, put in the extra 30 minutes or so, get back, shower, and cutting out all that commute time really allows me to extend the run in a way I couldn't have before. Right on. Very good. I've also found, I don't know if you've been doing this, like there, there have definitely been times when I have finished up a run and I've been stretching during a meeting. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I don't know if you've been doing that. Cameras off stretching during a meeting. I, I've definitely done that over the course of the past few months. Or so. mine is the, um, like chugging water. <laughs> so like I'll put myself on mute. I'll be like, and like, cause I don't know if you've ever heard someone like drinking water or something when they're not on mute, like you can tell and it's kind of gross. Uh-huh. So Right I've definitely had moments where someone's like, Patrick, what do you think? I'll have to just like waterboard myself, unmute and be like, well, right. here's what I think. Hmm. And then <laughs> <laughs> I, I have found. So on that, you know, to that, to that point, I found that, that, you know, when you, whenever you and I have talked about hydration before, I've always talked about how if you put water around you, you will drink it. I, mm-hmm. I found that, that if I, if I put, if I'm getting ready to start a meeting, 
I'll grab a whole bunch of liquids. I'll grab like two cans of LaCroix and a Diet Coke and a big thing of water and a couple of noon tablets and all that and just set it all down and like a cup of tea. And I'll just set it down on the desk. And over the course of the 30 to 40 minutes that I'm sitting in the meeting and stretching and just kind of being sweaty, I'll drink all of it. Um, yeah. you, me and you both. I So literally on Friday, I was looking and I had like two empty like purify like water containers like mm -hmm. on my desk along with like three empty water bottles and like some empty can of like recoil or something i was like i look like a mess right now because i have just <laughs> chugged so much water and liquid over the last two hours with the meetings it looks like a college dorm or something <laughs> <laughs> right on right on um, all right, Patrick, always good to talk to you. Always good to see you on Zoom. I appreciate your, uh, your answering these questions for our listeners and everything, man. Uh, best of luck. Do you have any, have you put anything on the calendar? I have. So I'm running the uh, Roswell 5K uh, in September, Labor Day weekend. Mm -hmm. Just like most virtual races, they give you like a two week, one week window to actually complete it. Mm -hmm. uh, that one's interesting because they actually make you complete it on a specific course. Mm -hmm. So you can't yeah. just start at the top of a hill and run straight the, down. The, the Riverside, the five at Riverside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm doing that one too. Very good. And there, there's a there's a five miler and a five k, and uh, I'm doing I'm doing both of them. So I think I think I'm gonna do the five k tomorrow, as a matter of fact. But anyway, keep talking. Perfect. Yes, yeah, so I'm doing that, and then I'm doing the Strava New York City virtual marathon. Ah, cool. So, so I figured that would be fun. What and how much time do they give you to do that one? So that's obviously not a, a you have to run at a particular place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, but, I think about two weeks. Mm -hmm. I, I don't mm -hmm. remember offhand, but it was about two or three weeks. So it was enough time. And, and most importantly, for those of us running here in Georgia, it's like end of October through like okay. first weekend of November. Right around when the New York Mar City Marathon would have been. Exactly. Right. Very good. And Very good. I gotta tell you, that's nice too, because we have had a, me and you both have had a few marathons where, on race day it's seventy two degrees, but mm -hmm. these virtual races, if you wake up at seventy two, you can yeah. run it the next morning. Right on, for sure, man, for sure. So, which is something I plan to do. <laughs> if I wake up tomorrow morning and it's, it's not the weather I really want it to be for the five at Riverside, I might choose another day. <laughs> exactly. Or just release this podcast the day late. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, Patrick, thanks again, man. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure. That'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. We appreciate you joining us. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. You can find us on Twitter at pleasantpodcast. You can find us on Instagram, Most Pleasant Exhaustion. And you can always download our podcast from Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at itlcoaching, at Facebook, facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance, and on Instagram, itlcoaching. You can check out Blue Pineapple Travel at bluepineappletravel.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, or on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And finally, SlayerX. You can find them at slayerx.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash here4slayerx. That's the number four, here4slayerx. On Instagram at here4slayerx, again the number four, and on Twitter at officialslayrx. Don't forget the discount code PLEASANT2020.
On behalf of Patrick Ollinger and Michelle Frank, this is George Darden. We appreciate you joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. <laughs>